Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. I am delighted today to be joined by Dr Rob Halifax who is a clinical academic respiratory registrar uh, working in Oxford and today we are going to be talking about the etiology, the management and the recent updates in management of pneumothorax. Why are we talking about this Dr Halifax? Great, thanks very much and uh, thanks for the invitation. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. So Pneumothorax is not a new condition, but it's certainly one whose you know, optimal management has not been well-defined uh, recently. But in the last 12 months, there have been two large randomised control trials, so that's why we've been talking about that more recently, and that's why it's been in the news. And so what trials are we talking about? So two large randomised control trials. So one was the my trial, which was the RAMP trial, which is the randomised ambulatory management of primary pneumothorax. So this really challenges the, the current BTS guidelines, which is what most people use, the British Thoracic Society guidelines, which suggests that most patients require either a needle aspiration or a chest drain insertion. And so the majority of people end up with a chest drain and sitting on the ward in hospital. Now, primary pneumothorax tends to happen in fit young people, often young men, and once they get admitted with a chest drain, you often stay in hospital for up to four to seven days, which I certainly don't think is the right way to, to be managing otherwise fit and well people. So we came up with a trial managing randomizing people to either an ambulatory strategy, which used a new device made by Rocket, which is called a plural bent, which essentially is a little box with a one-way valve inside that you insert onto the anterior chest wall. In the position you would do a needle aspiration initially, which is a second intercostal space midclavicular line. And the good thing about that device is that it's got a one-way valve inside, which doesn't need to be connected to an underwater seal, and so it doesn't need to be admitted to hospital and allows them to go home. And the control on was standard treatment as per the BTS guidelines. And we randomised 236 patients, which was our target, from 24 centres around the UK. So real patients in, in hospitals around the UK and our primary outcome was hospital stay over the first 30 days. And we found that the ambulatory strategy worked. So the ambulatory arm had a median hospital stay over the first 30 days, so included readmissions was zero days. So more than half the patients went home on the same day and didn't need to get readmitted. But in the control arm, that was four days. So significant time saving of patients being in hospital. Uh, one in five patients did require another procedure at some point over those days, but still the median stay was zero days. So that was the RAMP trial, which challenged the idea of getting patients in hospital and the idea that you could manage most of these primary pneumothoraces as outpatients. However, around the same time, there was another study, which was published in the New England Journal, conducted in Australia over the preceding six years, where they decided rather than ambulatory management to entirely conservatively manage primary pneumothorax now, that means not intervening at all, regardless of what the x-ray looked like and not intervening at all, all versus the standard care, which again was the, the British Thoracic Society guidelines. Now, interestingly, they decided that their primary outcome was, a, was going to be a radiological one. And it was the x-ray resolution of the pneumothorax at eight weeks rather than a patient-focused outcome. But nevertheless, the trial was successful and they designed it as a, a non-inferiority study. So equally successfully re resolved the pneumothorax after eight weeks. And in both arms, it was 95% or more. So it basically means if you don't intervene at all, regardless of how big the pneumothorax is, eight weeks later, your pneumothorax will be better. So I'm slightly critical on the primary outcome, but 
it was interesting that in the conservative managed group, only 15% of those did eventually end up needing a chest strain. So most of them did manage to be managed as outpatients. And because there was fewer interventions, there were fewer adverse events in those conservative managed group. And they also found that there was fewer recurrences over the next 12 months, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, I guess the tricky bit is to know quite what to make of that, partly because the recurrences were much fewer in both the arms than we've seen in previous data. And the patient's symptom scores were much lower than we found in the, the RAMP study as well. So I'm slightly concerned that although these were large pneumothoraces, as measured by the chest X-ray, that it might be a slightly different patient group with lower symptoms compared to the RAMP study, which was an ambulatory management. I think it really just opens up the idea that the default shouldn't, shouldn't be admitting patients to hospital. It should be, how can we manage them as outpatients, either not intervening at all or going home with an ambulatory device? So it's really interesting to have your summary of those two groundbreaking trials in pneumothorax management. And I guess one of the things that I want to really bring it back to is, is how, how did you get into this aspect of plural and respiratory medicine research? And how, how do you see the incorporation of these trials into future guidelines? Yeah, great, of course. Well, I've always been interested in medicine, particularly those specialties within an intervention bent to them. So that's why I liked respiratory medicine. But I do remember as a SHO on the ward, we had a young man with a primary pneumothorax who was sat there on his laptop two, two days into his stay and asked us a number of questions which we just couldn't answer. And they're quite basic questions which we think we should be able to do as doctors. He was saying, how long will I going to be in for? Why did this happen to me? What is it in my lung that's not normal? And will I have another one in the future? And we just had to admit to him on the ward and we didn't really know the answer to any of those things. As you know, patients with a pneumothorax, once they get admitted, we look at their chest x-ray each day and look to see whether their chest drain is still bubbling. And once those resolve, we then take the drain out and, and that's it. But that might be two days. It might be seven days. So we couldn't tell them how long it's going to be. We don't really know quite what it is within the lung of these patients with prime pneumothorax that allows the air to leak out to cause a pneumothorax in the first place. And once the drain's out, we send them home and said, you've got about a, a 30% risk of this happening again at some point in the next year or two, but I can't really be any more specific than that. And it's certainly... For me, it struck me how little we knew about this disease in this area. And so that really sparked my interest. And I said, once I decided to be a respiratory doctor, I was fortunate enough to become uh, to get an academic number as an ST1. And I really wanted to answer some of those questions. So I did a PhD in pneumothorax here in Oxford, including running the RAMP study, which I talked about. And I'm currently an academic clinical lecturer, which means I've got half my time doing research here and half the time finishing up my registrar training. And I guess the, the idea with this is that you know, this is not an uncommon illness. We know from some of our epidemiology data that I published a year or so ago that in the UK, there's eight or 9,000 spontaneous pneumothoraces happening across the country, across the UK. And there's this bimodal peak, the first of it, which is around the sort of 20 or 30 year olds, which are mainly primary pneumothorax without underlying lung diseases, which happens more often in males. And we think that on your average size hospital, you'll see one or two of these a week. So it's, you know, it's not on the same scale as pneumonia, but it's something that you see quite a lot. And really, the guidance is relatively old now. You know, the BTS guidelines were published in 2010, and there still seems to be a bit of variation in how these patients are being managed. And I certainly think there's time to, uh, to change that. So the current guidelines suggest that patients with a large pneumothorax, now the BTS decide that that means greater than two centimetres of uh, at the level of the hyla of the pneumothorax, 
which corresponds to about a 50% uh, sort of 3D size of a pneumothorax, so about half the, of the chest being taken up by air. That's the level at which you should intervene, or if they're very symptomatic, you should then undergo a needle aspiration and draining up to two and a half litres. But we know from a number of randomised trials of needle aspiration versus chest drain, that this only works in between 40 and 80% of the time. So a significant proportion of those patients need a chest drain and then get admitted to hospital. And I think those two trials I mentioned of the ambulatory management and the conservative management are really going to challenge that in the next round of the, the guidelines, which will hopefully be out early, early next year. I certainly think that in these fit and well patients, it's allowing us to now have a discussion with the patient. It shouldn't be a default admission to hospital. We can talk about potential conservative management or ambulatory management if that pathway exists in your hospital and gives the patient more choice and the physician more flexibility. That's a really um, insightful look into the recent data that's coming out there. And I guess this is a talk that's aimed at IMT doctors, but also registrars and general medical specialties. And I guess just to bring it back to the basic level before we go into case, Rob, is if um, we could just describe what pneumothorax is just on the most simplistic level and how is it classified? Obviously, we've talked about primary and secondary. And do you have any idea about how it happens and are there any risk factors for it? Yeah, absolutely. So pneumothorax, at the basic level, is air in the pleural space. Normally, there isn't a gap between the two layers of pleura, but pneumothorax is air in there, and that can occur by any by any mechanism, really. So either the air can come in from the outside, be that traumatic or actogenic. So if they've had a car crash and a rib fracture and let air in from the outside, or someone has tried to put a pacemaker in and they've gone through into the pleura and let air in that side, that would be actogenic. But it does occur spontaneously. And that's when air leaks out from the lung for some reason. In patients with known lung disease, we call that secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, where it's secondary to the abnormality of the lung, such as COPD or, or bullous lung disease or interstitial lung disease. But it does occur in otherwise fit young patients without known lung disease, and that's called a primary spontaneous pneumothorax. And for me, it's the, the primary pneumothorax in particular that interests me because well, the textbooks will tell you that it's happening in, in the case of normal lung, but I really challenge that. Say the lung can't be normal because the lung doesn't normally leak air out. And we don't really know why it happens. There is a bit of data out there from surgical lung specimens over the last few years, which suggests that there might be sort of an overexpression of some inflammatory markers or inflammatory proteases that may be breaking down and thin out the layer of the pleura at the top of the lung, and that might be where the air leaks out from, but quite why that happens and whether that happens more so in, in young patients that are going to have pneumothorax over other people is, is certainly an area of interest for me. So at the moment, we still have to tell people we don't really know what's happened to you. It happens more in tall, thin young men. But again, there's lots of tall, thin young men out there who don't have pneumothoraces. It happens slightly more in smokers than non-smokers. And again, it, whether the smoking just tips the balance and there's an extra infl inflammation within the lung that in those patients who are susceptible causes some air to leak out, it's, it's not clear. But we do tend to classify it in those two terms. And I, but I think we not, might end up needing to blur the two slightly of saying there's something going on in the lung in primary pneumothorax, what we used to call primary pneumothorax, the young patients. But that's different to those patients who've got demonstrable lung disease in the secondary pneumothoraces. And I guess one of the useful things about dividing them into two different categories is that we know that patients with underlying lung disease tend to have worse outcomes. So if you've got significant CBD or interstitial lung disease, you're going to cope less well with air in your thorax. You're more likely to then decompensate and require oxygen or in the case of people with CBD, potentially become hypercapnic and, and need 
need further treatments. We know that those patients with spontaneous pneumothoraces is a significant mortality risk, whereas in primary pneumothoraces, it's frustrating being in hospital, but actually it doesn't tend to doesn't tend to uh, to kill you. Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's a really good background to um, to the case that I'd like to talk about. If that's okay with you, yeah, great. Um, so let's talk about a young twenty-one-year-old student who's normally fit and well, and they presented to the acute medical take with sudden onset breathlessness and right-sided pleuritic chest pain whilst doing some chin-ups. He's got no medical history, no regular medications, never a smoker. He's a keen, regular deep-sea diver. On examination, he's comfortable at rest. He's talking in full sentences, respiratory rate 16, heart rates 80, sats uh, off oxygen or 98% on air. He's got a normal palate. The registrars um, reviewed them. They've got no concerns about any underlying connective tissue disease but there's reduced breath sounds and hyperresonance to percussion on the right side. And the chest x-ray did show a large right-sided pneumothorax greater than two centimetres distance at the level of the hilum with um, normal left lung parenchyma. So having just listened to that, how, how would you approach this patient in AMU and what's your advice to AMU doctors and how to approach this patient? Yeah, I think the, the basics are, are critical, aren't they? So initial assessment using the ABCD approaches is key. It sounds like he's pretty well, given the, the observations that you've just given me, but there is a potential risk of tension pneumothorax, which I guess we can talk about later. The risk in primary pneumothorax is low, but really we should be considering if he's stable, hemodynamically okay, what his symptom level is. So we've talked about the, the potential options of conservative management versus ambulatory management. If he's got uh, not too many symptoms, so he's probably arrived because he's breathless or he's got some chest pain. If that's manageable and he's walking around uh, not feeling too unwell, despite the measurement of being more than two centimetres, which we define as a large pneumothorax, we could potentially manage him conservatively. I think that's what the Australian study showed us, that actually we can be slightly less obsessed about the size on the x-ray if the patient is completely asymptomatic. But if he has got some ongoing, ongoing symptoms and people often breathless or have this ongoing chest pain, then you can decide potentially to intervene. And as I mentioned, the, currently the guidelines suggest a needle aspiration. If in your trust you had an ambulatory pathway, and essentially that means making sure you've got somewhere you know to refer the patient can get followed up by a respiratory doctor or, or an interested medical or A&E doctor, you could potentially insert a device with a, a one-way valve inside and get them home. But in most cases, it's a case of deciding how to intervene. Just going back to the idea of the size of the pneumothorax, if you're deciding to intervene, the guidelines at the moment don't really tell us to differentially treat them depending on the size of the pneumothorax. But there have been a couple of fairly recent randomised trials of needle aspiration versus chest strain, suggesting that if it is a very large pneumothorax, needle aspiration isn't likely to be successful. And this kind of makes sense because the British Thoracic Society guidelines suggest that you should aspirate up to two and a half litres but actually the thoracic cavity can be four or five litres in size. So if you've got a, a large pneumothorax that's reduced, you know, the lungs reduced right the way down to you know, 10% of the, of the space, you've got a significant proportion of air that's going to be left over once you've aspirated a litre and a half. So although the guidelines don't say it yet, I would be uh, tempted in the very large pneumothoraces to put a chest strain in if that was what you're going to do rather than ambulatory management, because I think needle aspiration is unlikely to work. And so you, you then need to do a second aspiration. Mm-hmm. So he, he decides that um, he doesn't want any aspiration done, but he's happy to have the ambulatory device that you described 
what kind of follow-up would he get um, and what kind of course do you often see in these patients? Yeah, so what we saw in the RAMP study was that, well, as part of the research, we followed people up every day. So I think that was probably a bit overkill, but we were being cautious because it was a research study. In reality, most patients resolve over the next three to four days. The median duration with the device in place was three days. So although we saw patients every day, we usually would take the device out after two or three days. So what we're setting up in Oxford here is putting the device in one day, observe them for a half an hour or an hour to make sure they're stable. I see them the next day because sometimes it does resolve very quickly. But if that's not fully resolved, as in the x-ray is not fully re-expanded, I would then see them every two days, every 48 hours or so with a chest x-ray in our ambulatory assessment area. So I think the key is to have interested people in your hospital and a clear pathway where to follow the patients up. So you need people who know about the device to put it in and then familiarity of, of what to look for when you see them it, it follow up as well. And that's mainly about looking to see whether the, the device is working and you can see whether a little flutter valve is fluttering inside and to see whether the chest x-ray is really expanded. And I take it it's when the lung has reinflated point when you would remove the device. Yes, that, that's right. Yeah, there is in that particular device, the rocket pleural vent, there is a valve on the top that you can put a little uh, connector onto and you can actually try and aspirate through it. And what I tend to find is the x-ray looks good and, and the lungs all the way up and you can't manually aspirate air through the little uh, connector. That means that the lung is all the way up and there's no residual air and you can take the device out. Hmm. So it's quite straightforward, but it just needs a needs a needs someone to describe it. And what if the device falls out? Is that a possibility? Uh, it is possible. We we didn't have any of those happen in the in our study. It's got a super sticky dressing that attaches onto the, the front of the chest. So apart from having to shave the, the front of the chest in very hairy men, it's, it's not necessarily a problem. In people who are very sweaty, you can stitch them in. There's little holes to put a suture through. But for the primary neurothoraces, we didn't have any problems with the, these falling out at all. Though we had, in a couple of cases, I mentioned that about one in five people needed some further intervention at some point. And... Out of the 117 patients that had the vent, two of them had a blockage of the, of the vent in that the lung wasn't re-expanding fully and it didn't seem to be working, so it got taken out. And they then had a chest drain put in, but that was a, a small proportion of those that had the primary pneumothorax. And I guess that um, brings us on to management of tension pneumothorax, and that could happen if that device got blocked. Is that something that you'd see or you'd advise? Yeah, absolutely. So... I guess tension is, is just an increasing pressure in the thoracic cavity. It's, it's an unusual situation to happen in primary or, or secondary spontaneous pneumothorax. But essentially what needs to happen is that the hole in the edge of the lung, so the visceral pleura, needs to be letting air out, but not back in again. So you essentially have a one-way valve when the patient breathes in, air goes into the space, but when they breathe out, regardless of the pressure, it doesn't come back out again. It's very rare extremely rare in primary pneumothorax, but it can happen in, in secondaries or traumatic pneumothorax. And really what you're looking for is increasing the patient's symptoms so that they get more breathless. But once the pressure gets high enough in the chest, that then causes some hemodynamic compromise because the pressure in the chest is so great that it reduces the venous return to the heart. So they end up getting a lower blood pressure because of lack of filling of the right side of the heart and a hemodynamic compromise. So if you've got anyone that you're suspecting of primary pneumothorax from their history, but they start to decompensate and you can look for them, the shift uh, by feeling for the trachea in the neck 
or if they start to drop their blood pressure, I wouldn't wait to get a chest X-ray. I'd try and decompress it immediately with a needle into the second intercostal space anteriorly. You should hear then hear a hiss. They'll suddenly feel a lot better, and and you've uh, potentially saved a life. I would also then advocate you, know, you might feel much better because you've decompressed it, but you should definitely put a chest drain into these patients because these are patients who could potentially get worse again. So you'd certainly want to a chest drain in to make sure that the lungs completely healed up. Mm-hmm. Don't just feel satisfied. You decompress them and that's it. And so I'm, I'm keen to get on to what you would do if the drain's been in for a few days and you've tried things like putting on suction, so loop low pressure suction and it's still not reinflating what do you do for this chap now given that he's such a keen diver likes to do deep sea diving yeah so i guess this this is the situation we'll be talking about uh, prolonged air leak and this this can happen in in any form of pneumothorax and it's usually defined as an air leak that's persisted for more than two or three days the literature varies quite slightly on the definition if it's an air leak after surgery they say that's more than 48 hours but I tend to say if it's been more than three or four days, we'd call it a persistent air leak. The best way to, to fix a, an air leak going forward is, is surgery. So if you've got someone with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax that's still bubbling after three or four days, I'd be speaking to my local thoracic surgeon about going in, clipping off an area where the air leak is, which is often at the apex of the lung. You may They may or may not see little blebs or bullet at the top, which they can include in their apical wedge resection, but they'll also conduct a, a pleurodesis and that's either by spraying talcum powder in or they'll do a thing called a pleurectomy which is where they peel away the inside uh, layer of, of the pleura the parietal pleura and the idea with both of those things is that you're calling a pleurodesis so that you get a sticking of the visceral pleura to the parietal pleura so the lung to the chest wall and that physically stops the lung collapsing down again and I mentioned about recurrence rates before about about one in three patients will have a another episode of spontaneous pneumothorax in the next year or so. But if you have a, a talc or, or a pleurectomy pleurodesis under the surgeons, your recurrence rate goes down to between 1% and 3%. So it significantly reduces your, your recurrence risk. At the moment, if you had your patient had resolved and they'd gone home, but they'd had more than two or three episodes, then the recurrence risk becomes a lot higher. So we tend to refer people after their second episode for recurrence prevention. Partly because one in three will recur, but it means two in three won't. So we don't refer everybody because we don't want to operate on people who aren't going to recur. But if you've had multiple episodes, you would refer to the surgeons. I guess the reason you're uh, you're highlighting the, the keen diver is because the advice we give to patients who've had a pneumothorax is you shouldn't scuba dive after you've had a pneumothorax. Now, that's because it's a very risky and dangerous thing to have a pneumothorax while you're diving because you're breathing compressed gas deep in the ocean. And you know, when you come back up to the surface, you can equalize the pressures in your ears and in your the air in your lungs, but you can't equalize the pressure that's outside of your lungs. And so then you get essentially give yourself attention in your thorax by being unable to decompress your lung. So those are the situations where if someone had a high risk job, so if you were a commercial airline pilot, again, not ideal to have a pneumothorax while you're flying your plane or you worked as a you know, deep sea diver on a North Sea oil rig and you had to go and scuba dive for a living, would always refer those patients after one episode. I guess the keen diver, uh, recreational diver, you could again have a discussion with them. I'll be happy to refer them onto my surgeons here to have a chat. And it's really about risk benefit, isn't it? So if the patient was super keen to do it and he went, went scuba diving three times a year, 
that's a big deal for him if he'd like to go undergo surgery and the risks will be, albeit low in elective surgery then I think it would be reasonable to have that discussion with the patient so I, I would refer him as an outpatient if he was a keen diver but as I say those patients with an ongoing air leak ideally you'd refer on to surgery so those are, that's really where the picture for primary spontaneous pneumothorax things are slightly different when you start to talk about secondary pneumothoraces and mm-hmm. um, because sometimes those patients do have significant comorbidities, which means a general anaesthetic for you know, video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery for recurrence prevention or, or air leak cessation is not that uh, easy to do. And that gets a bit trickier. So unfortunately, some of those patients with severe CPD end up on a ward with a bubbling chest drain for weeks at a time waiting for it to resolve. Now, you can just wait. Sometimes it does resolve on its own. And some, some data from a few years ago is that if you wait long enough, most of them will resolve. But actually, I think after after a week or so, it's, it's getting pretty tricky. One of the things you can do in those secondary pneumothoraces that aren't fit for surgery is actually what's called a blood patch pleuridesis, which essentially means we use the patient's own blood. So you draw off uh, 50 to 100 mils of their own blood and then inject it into the via the chest drain into their chest. And essentially, this just sort of activates the clotting cascade. And if it's enough of it's going in, you can coat the surface of the lung, and that helps heal up where the uh, the hole is on the uh, on the surface of the lung. The data is a bit mixed on this because it's lots of case series, really, but it seems to work in up to seventy five or eighty percent of patients with uh, persistent air leak with a second pneumothorax. So I think it's certainly worth trying. And after that, it, it gets a bit tricky where you're having to put talc into a chest drain that's potentially still bubbling. Um, but it's uh, it's certainly worth an option. I hadn't heard about the blood patch. That's really interesting. And uh, and does that create the same kind of systemic response that you'd get with talc? No, it, initially it, it doesn't. So although we called it blood patch pleuridesis, pleuridesis is kind of an inverted commas, it's really a way of, way of trying to heal up the defect on the lung. It doesn't form quite the same sort of adhesions with, after inflammation that you get after talc or a pleurectomy. I think it probably does reduce your recurrence risk a bit, but it does, certainly doesn't form the same sort of uh, reduction in your recurrence risk that the uh, talc would do. So I guess you could you could actually do a, a blood patch pleuridesis on someone with an ongoing leak that actually, if it's then heals up, you could consider putting talc in as well. And I think for those patients with secondary pneumothoraces, even if it's their first episode, if they've had a particularly traumatic stay in terms of they may have decompensated, they may have been in hospital for a long time, you really don't want that patient to have another episode. So that's when you can instill talc via the chest drain rather than via surgery to try and reduce their recurrence risk. You need to warn patients that uh, the talc, because it does cause this sort of inflammation of the pleura, it is very painful. So we often give patients or a morph or something similar beforehand. We put local anaesthetic through the drain before you give the talc um, and you definitely need to warn the patient before you do it. It's really good. I guess just from the acute medical unit perspective, what are the key things that you'd want to know from the clinician that's referring the patient and what would you advise them on and what they can do before you come down and see them? Yeah, so I'd expect you to you know, have assessed the patient, as we mentioned, to make sure there's no evidence of tension and to get them treated quickly if there are. And I guess depending on your, your local setup, if there's an ambulatory pathway trying to plug them into that. Otherwise, it's a discussion of whether to attempt a needle aspiration or go for a chest strain and then manage from there. I guess in terms of history taking, I think it's useful to know that around one in 10 patients with a pneumothorax has a family history. So one in 10 will have a first degree relative with a history of pneumothorax. And so I certainly look at to sending all those patients for genetic testing 
Although frustratingly, of all of those we send that we only get a recognised familial condition in about 25%, but I think it's still worth sending off. Importantly, some of the diagnoses you're looking for, everyone knows about the tall, thin, marfanoid patient or with um, connective tissue disease that, that perhaps has some slightly stretchy collagen that makes them more at risk. But there are other conditions which are important to diagnose, such as Bertholdt-Dewey syndrome, which is a, you know, a dominant genetic condition where people either present with pneumothoraces or folliculomas, which are these little white spots mainly around the nose and, and the, the face but importantly, it has an association with renal carcinoma. So if patients with a strong family history of pneumothorax, I always ask them about whether anyone's had uh, kidney cancer in their family, or even if they haven't, the strong family history, I'd get them screened for Bertholdt-Dewey syndrome because renal cancers, you know, often lie dormant for a while and you only pick them up late. So that patient should be plugged into a regular screening program looking for that early renal cancer that could get treated. So always take a family history and particularly looking for other associated things such as uh, folliculomas on the face or asking about renal cancers as well. That's great, that's great. I was going to ask about whether we can ambulate secondary pneumothorax patients just on, on what you said, but it sounds like there's limited role for that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so interestingly, we did conduct a study this time run out of Bristol looking at essentially a sister study to the RAMP study called HiSpec where we try to randomise patients with to the rocket pleural vent device or standard care for secondary neuthorosis as well. Um, unfortunately, there was lots of problems in recruiting to this study because it's people are often wary about trying to ambulate people with secondary neuthorosis for the reasons we mentioned before. But they also had lots of problems with adverse events in the pleural vent group, and uh, they actually had to change the protocol halfway through to putting a one-way valve on the end of the existing chest drain rather than using the pleural vent. So I guess my take home from the from the high spec study is that the plural vents don't work well for secondary pneumothoraces. They tend to get blocked or don't cope well with the air leak. Compared to the primary pneumothoraces, they do seem to work well. And although this was a negative study because it didn't reduce hospital stay because of the problems with their vents, there was a suggestion that the placing of a one-way valve on, on the end of a chest drain would be able to get patients out of hospital. But because the numbers were quite small, it's it was only a a signal rather than a, something definitive but I think it's a, it's a possible thing to, to uh, consider and I'm not sure the guidelines will change definitively but I think if you've got someone that you know got lung disease but they're otherwise quite fit and well and they're sat on the ward what we often uh, do or think about doing is changing the underwater seal bottle to an ambulatory device as in putting it on the end of a chest drain rather than inserting a new one and if they're happy with that and you keep them in for 24 hours to observe them making sure they don't get worse it's not more painful than the x-ray doesn't suggest that the pneumothorax is getting bigger, you could potentially ambulate those patients, but I certainly wouldn't advocate it in all secondary pneumothorax. That's really, um, really insightful. I guess I'd like to wrap up now. And I mean, you could talk about pneumothorax for a long time, uh, <laughs> but I guess I'd just like to get your thoughts on some key take-home messages for our listeners and really just some key learning points before we, um, we finish and conclude this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for the invitation. This has been great. I guess I want to say that you know, spontaneous pneumothorax is common. Your advertised hospital will see one or two of these a week and the management does vary quite a lot and the current guidelines are somewhat out of date. And I certainly think the days of the default admission to hospital with a primary pneumothorax are over. I think either conservative management for those patients with minimal symptoms, regardless of the size of the pneumothorax, or ambulatory management of those patients that you do want to treat with significant symptoms should be the options now. 
but I'm aware that this, these pathways do need setting up. You need detailed collaborations with emergency medicine, you know, the acute medicine and the respiratory teams to make sure that patients who get sent home know where to come back to and what to do when they come back. Secondary hemothoraces, I think, still remain a challenge, but in the right patient group, we could potentially manage them as an outpatient, but I think a bit more work needs to be done there. And I guess lastly, just take a, a good family history. You may well discover this is familial, or you might discover a significant uh, illness that needs following up further. That's um, certainly a really useful uh, learn, learning lesson for me. I, I've taken some great value in what we've talked about, Rob. I would once again just to say thank you very much for chatting with me today. No problem. On behalf of the college, thank you for joining us. And no thank you. For our, for our listeners, um, this would be a good opportunity just to invite your feedback through our Twitter and our Instagram account. And it would really just be useful to, to now highlight that the Respiratory Medicine Symposium um, will be in March of 2022. And so that's not far away. As usual, the, the programme will be full of useful and stimulating talks, such as um, what we've just had, our Clinical Conversations podcast. So once again, thank you very much, Dr Halifax, and thank you for listening and thank you for joining us.